Hi, it's Meg Wallitzer. I love the holidays, all of them. Trim the tree, polish the menorah, find those presents. I love the chance to see family and friends, exchange recipes, and spend a lot of time at the kitchen table. All of which means I'm a little busy, so I'm handing this week's show over to another busy writer, David Sedaris. I'll be back next year and hope you will too. Outside on the sidewalk, there were people laughing, arm in arm, holding their faces up to the falling snow. What's the big deal? Snow's just rain that's been left out in the cold. This week on Selected Shorts, Christmas magic, like it or not. I'm David Sedaris, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. In this episode of Selected Shorts, we hear stories about people ready to defy the usual holiday protocols. These protagonists seek to create their own wintry magic, though they might get waylaid by ice on the interstate or price tags on presents. They also come out with new ways to appreciate the season. The joy of Christmas is that it's a family holiday, and the sorrow is that families shift. Parents divorce, people die or wander off, empty spaces are left at the table, and those of us remaining are frequently having to, in the words of my favorite Carol, muddle through somehow. So if nothing else, let's celebrate our resilience. It's Christmas, damn it. Our first story, Powder, is by novelist, memoirist, and short story master Tobias Wolf. This is Selected Short's late founder, Isaiah Sheffer, reading Tobias Wolf's Powder. Just before Christmas, my father took me skiing at Mount Baker. He'd had to fight for the privilege of my company because my mother was still angry with him for sneaking me into a nightclub during our last visit to see Thelonious Monk. He wouldn't give up. He promised, hand on heart, to take good care of me and have me home for dinner on Christmas Eve. And she relented. But as we were checking out the lodge that morning, it began to snow. And in this snow, he observed some quality that made it necessary for us to get in one last ski run. We got in several last ski runs. He was indifferent to my fretting. Snow whirled around us in bitter, blinding squalls, hissing like sand, and still we skied. As the lift bore us to the peak yet again, my father looked at his watch and said, Criminy, this'll have to be a fast one. By now, I couldn't see the trail. There was no point in trying. I stuck to him like white on rice and did what he did and somehow made it to the bottom without sailing off a cliff. We returned our skis and my father put chains on the Austin Healy while I swayed from foot to foot, clapping my mittens and wishing I were home. I could see everything, the green tablecloth, the plates with the holly pattern, the red candles waiting to be lit. We passed a diner on our way out. You want some soup, my father asked. I shook my head. Buck up, he said. I'll get you there. Right, doctor? I was supposed to say, right, doctor, but I didn't say anything. A state trooper waved us down outside the resort. A pair of sawhorses were blocking the road. 
The trooper came up to our car and bent down to my father's window. His face was bleached by the cold. Snowflakes clung to his eyebrows and to the fur trim of his jacket and cap. Don't tell me, my father said. The trooper told him. <laughs> the road was closed. It might get cleared, it might not. Storm took everyone by surprise, so much, so fast. Hard to get people moving, Christmas Eve. What can you do? My father said, look, we're talking about four or five inches. I've taken this car through worse than that. The trooper straightened up, boots creaking. His face was out of sight, but I could hear him. The road is closed. My father sat with both hands on the wheel, rubbing the wood with his thumbs. He looked at the barricade for a long time. He seemed to be trying to master the idea of it. <laughs> then he thanked the trooper, and with a weird old matey show of caution, turned the car around. Your mother will never forgive me for this, he said. We should have left before, I said, doctor. <laughs> he didn't speak to me again until we were both in a booth at the diner waiting for our burgers. She won't forgive me, he said. Do you understand? Never. I guess, I said, but no guesswork was required. She wouldn't forgive him. <laughs> I can't let that happen, he bent toward me. I'll tell you what I want. I want us to be together again. Is that what you want? I wasn't sure, but I said, yes, sir. He bumped my chin with his knuckles. That's all I needed to hear. When we finished eating, he went to the payphone in the back of the diner, then joined me in the booth again. I figured he'd called my mother, but he didn't give a report. He sipped at his coffee and stared out the window at the empty road. Come on! When the trooper's car went past, lights flashing, he got up, dropped some money on the check. Okay, vamonos! The wind had died. The snow was falling straight down. Less of it now, lighter. We drove away from the resort right up to the barricade. Move it, my father told me. When I looked at him, he said, what are you waiting for? I got out and dragged one of the sawhorses aside, then pushed it back after he drove through. When I got inside the car, he said, now you're an accomplice. We go down together. <laughs> he put the car in gear and looked at me. Joke, doctor. Funny, doctor. Down the first long stretch, I watched the road behind us to see if the trooper was on our tail. The barricade vanished. Then there was nothing but snow. Snow on the road, snow kicking up from the chains, snow on the trees, snow in the sky, and our trail in the snow. I faced around and had a shock. The lie of the road behind us had been marked by our own tracks, but there were no tracks ahead of us. My father was breaking virgin snow between a line of tall trees. He was humming, stars fell on Alabama. I felt snow brush along the floorboards under my feet. To keep my hands from shaking, I clamped them between my knees. My father grunted in a thoughtful way and said, don't ever try this yourself. <laughs> I won't. That's what you say now, but someday you'll get your license and then you'll think you can do anything, only you won't be able to do this. You need, I don't know, a certain instinct. Maybe I have it. You don't. You have your strong points, but not, you know, I only mention it because I don't want you to get the idea this is something just anybody can do. I am a great driver. That's not a virtue, okay? Just a fact, one you should be aware of. Of course, you have to give the old heap some credit, too. There aren't many cars I'd try this with. Listen, 
I listened. I heard the slap of the chains, the stiff, jerky rasp of the wipers, the purr of the engine. It really did purr. The car was almost new. My father couldn't afford it and kept promising to sell it, but here it was. I said, where do you think that policeman went to? Are you warm enough? He reached over and cranked up the blower. Then he turned off the wipers. We didn't need them. The clouds had brightened. A few sparse feathery flakes drifted onto our slipstream and were swept away. We left the trees and entered a broad field of snow that ran level for a while and then tilted sharply downward. Orange stakes had been planted at intervals in two parallel lines, and my father ran a course between them. Although they were far enough apart to leave considerable doubt in my mind as to where exactly the road lay. He was humming again, doing little scat riffs around the melody. Okay, then, what are my strong points? Don't get me started, he said. It'd take all day. All right, name one. Easy. You always think ahead. True, I always thought ahead. I was a boy who kept his clothes on numbered hangers to ensure proper rotation. I bothered my teachers for homework assignments far ahead of their due dates so I could make up schedules. I thought ahead, and that was why I knew that there would be other troopers waiting for us at the end of our ride. <laughs> if we got there. What I did not know was that my father would wheedle and plead his way past them. He didn't sing, oh, Tannenbaum, but just about and that he would get me home for dinner, buying a little more time before my mother decided to make the split final. I knew we'd get caught. I was resigned to it. And maybe for this reason, I stopped moping and began to enjoy myself. Why not? This was one for the books, like being in a speedboat, only better. You can't go downhill in a boat. And it was all ours. And it kept coming, the laden trees, the unbroken surface of snow, the sudden white vistas. Here and there, I saw hints of the road, ditches, fences, stakes, but not so many that I could have found my way. But then, I didn't have to. My father, in his 48th year, rumpled, kind, bankrupt of honor, flushed with certainty, he was a great driver. All persuasion, no coercion. Such subtlety at the wheel, such tactful pedal work, I actually trusted him, and the best was yet to come, switchbacks and hairpins impossible to describe, except maybe to say this. If you haven't driven fresh powder, you haven't driven. <laughs> Isaiah Sheffer performed Tobias Wolff's Powder. What I love about this story is its economy, how deftly Wolff sets up the narrator and his parents, especially the father, who is, quote, bankrupt of honor and flush with certainty. Such a winning, losing combination. The next piece in our program of Holiday Fair, Gifts of the Jewish Magi, is about Hanukkah. But as many Jewish people can tell you, it can be difficult to sidestep Christmas during the month of December. The story's author is Allegra Goodman, whose novels include The Cookbook Collector and The Chalk Artist. The title plays on the famous O. Henry Christmas story, Gift of the Magi, 
as Goodman tweaks the lofty selflessness on display in the original. Our performers, Michael Cerverus and Dana Ivey, evoke the warmth and familiarity of a long-married couple in their reading. This is Allegra Goodman's Gift of the Jewish Magi. Gifts of the Jewish Magi. With apologies to O. Henry. $18.70. That was all. Bill picked up the pearl stud earrings in their blue velvet box. Are they real pearls? He asked the sidewalk vendor at the Park Street station. <laughs> Everything's real, the salesman assured him. Real pearls, real gold. You need a watch? These are real Rolexes. Datejust, Lady Datejust, gold, platinum, titanium. I should get home, Bill said. I'm late already. That evening was the first night of Hanukkah. He couldn't help feeling pleased with himself as he ran down the stairs to the trains. The earrings were not only a bargain, but elegant, a classic gift for Perry. And she hadn't asked for anything except that he get his hair cut and his beard trimmed. Bill still wore his hair in a ponytail. He was pushing 60 and his beard and long hair lent him a scholarly appearance. He looked a bit like an early American or perhaps a grizzled sailor on shore leave from old Ironsides. In fact, he was a scholar and a bit of a seaman as well. He was a specialist in sleep disorders at MIT, and he had a small sailboat of his own named Peregrine after his graceful, sensible, patient wife. This wife of his had just got home. She stamped the slush of her off her boots in the vestibule of the Cambridge triple-decker where she and Bill lived. Perry and Bill were relative newlyweds, married for just two years, but they'd lived together in the apartment for 16. Their names had faded next to the ancient buzzer downstairs, and the label on their mailbox was covered with peeling yellow tape. Years ago, Bill had bought their third-floor apartment for $44,000, an almost unimaginable sum in his mind. He had walked in, he'd told Perry, and fallen instantly in love with the dark Victorian woodwork, the comforting decrepitude of the apartment, the worn linoleum floor in the kitchen, the giant elm out front, the seedy neighborhood. Now the elm had passed away, or more accurately, been chopped and hacked to pieces, a victim of Dutch elm disease. The neighborhood was full of families and architects and journalists and shrinks, and Bill was awed and almost penitent to think that the apartment was now worth 10 times what he had paid for it. He hated to think he owned something so valuable. He was funny that way. He wore a ragged-down parka, the sleeves patched up with silver duct tape. Perry had resigned herself to the fact years ago that with the notable exceptions of his apartment and his boat, Bill's only voluntary purchases were used books. She took the menorah off one of Bill's sagging bookcases and gave it a good dusting before she set it on the table by the front window. Then she picked out candles, yellow and blue, from the cardboard Hanukkah candle box. The candles were small as crayons, and she knew if she lit them now, they'd melt away to nothing long before Bill got home, so she stretched out on the couch and waited. Perry had converted to Judaism three years before. Formerly, she'd been a non-practicing Episcopalian, a doctoral candidate in European history, and a dance therapist. 
Now she taught the art of the memoir at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. She loved the Jewish religion, the history, the high holidays, the fasting for Yom Kippur while autumn leaves fell down the idea of a season of retrospection, introspection. Passover seemed a brilliant holiday to her, part Thanksgiving feast, part graduate seminar. However, Hanukkah always left her feeling a little empty. She knew it was only a minor Jewish holiday. Still, she wished there was more to Hanukkah, more feasting, more ceremonies, more falderall. The neighbors were bustling, stringing Christmas lights from their front porches, adorning their front doors with wreaths. At night, when she drove through Somerville, the houses blazed with illuminated reindeer and nativity scenes. The three wise men, giant plastic magi, arrayed themselves in robes and crowns and turbans before the plastic baby Jesus to do homage and deliver their caskets of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Outdoor creches were not Perry's style. Still, she missed caroling. Giving up Christian theology had not been hard for her, but she did love the music and she missed decorating a tree. This above all, she missed the Christmas tree, the magic sparkling spruce rising to the ceiling, spreading its branches and sprinkling all the gifts below with pine needles. She couldn't help it. She missed that symbol of her childhood. The year before, she'd actually bought some blue and silver tinsel for the mantelpiece and a shiny banner cut out in the shape of multicolored dreidels. You can't be serious, Bill said. And she assured him she was not and stuffed the tinsel back into the bag. She realized Bill enjoyed understated holidays. Look at it this way, Bill always said. The great thing about Hanukkah is you don't have to pretend to be merry. He surprised her then with his jubilance as he stepped in the door. Happy Hanukkah, he cried out. She thought he must be joshing her with exaggerated cheer. Happy Hanukkah to you, she said. I got you something, he told her. Oh, your haircut, much better, she said, examining him. No, I got you an actual gift, he told her. Really? Yeah, do you want to see it? Hold on. I got you something too, she said, and she went to the coat closet and took out a new down parka, exactly like his old ripped one. See, she said, it's the same size, the same color. I had to back order it. My old one is perfectly good, Bill said. But she said. kissed him. She kissed him and explained, I'm not allowing you out of the house any longer with duct tape on your sleeves. But it's reflective, he pointed out the tape. <laughs> The tape is actually safer at night. I don't care, she said. Oh, all right, all right. Thank you. Can I give you mine? He fished in his pocket for a moment. Then he held out a real jewelry box, velvet-covered and midnight blue. She opened the box and found nothing tacky, nothing jokey, <laughs> but a simple pair of earrings she might actually wear. They're real, he said. I see that, she told him, amazed. 
She and Bill hadn't bothered with an engagement ring or even wedding bands. He had never given her jewelry before. Put them on, he urged her with childish delight. See, they'll go with everything. And she had not realized until that moment how good it felt to receive a gift from him, how much brighter the minor holiday of Hanukkah became. She was nearly blissful until she took possession of Bill's disreputable old coat so that she could burn it. Well, wait, at least let me empty out my pockets, I'll he protested. Do it, she said, and took out his gloves along with five more velvet-covered jewelry boxes. Bill, she said, what is this? Uh, uh, nothing, he told her. Just g- give me those. But it was too late. She opened one box and then the next. Five handsome boxes containing five pairs of pearl stud earrings, identical to the pair he'd just given her. What are these for, Bill? He looked at her uncertain, sheepish. For you, he said. All these earrings are for me? You got me six pairs of earrings? How many ears do you think I have? Well, I wasn't going to give them to you all at once, he said. She stared at him in amazement. You were going to hold them in reserve, huh? Well, I figured they would be nice for anniversaries and birthdays, and and they were a terrific deal. Billy? She didn't know whether to laugh or to cry. That is not how you give presents. You never buy six pairs of anything unless it sucks, all right? And you never, ever say they were a terrific deal. (laughs) I'm sorry, he said, throwing up his hands. My parents were Trotskyites, you know that. You can't use that excuse every single time. I'm telling you, they were communists, he said. We didn't give gifts in our family. We hated the whole idea of gifts, not to mention Jewish holidays. We were supposed to feel guilty we had food on the table and shirts on our backs. I wasn't brought up with all this, he pointed to the menorah. I wasn't either, but at least I try, she reproached him. Well, I just need a little more practice, he said, looking at the open jewelry boxes. I suppose I could find the guy and try to bring them back. Perry decided to laugh. They lit the candles and snuggled on the couch, and Bill gave Perry a foot massage, and they debated going out to dinner at the vegan restaurant in Porter Square. The two of them were, strictly speaking, a little self-absorbed. They were each other's children. But Bill and Perry were wise in their way as well. There was empathy and humor in their devotion. They gave of themselves indeed. They tried to transform themselves for each other, and these were great gifts. These were treasures worthy of Jewish magi. That was Allegra Goodman's Gift of the Jewish Magi, read by Dana Ivey and Michael Cerverus at Kane University. I'm David Sedaris. When we return, Santa's elves try home invasion. 
You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm David Sedaris. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. I first listened to Christmas in New York without knowing who wrote it and was surprised to learn it was by Jeanette Winterson, who I tend to associate with the English countryside rather than Manhattan. New York is a full-fledged character in this story, and it's so convincingly rendered, I assumed that the author was a native. That's Jeanette Winterson, a writer who can make me believe anything, and was so taken with this particular holiday that she wrote an entire book of stories on the subject. We featured her luminous Spirit of Christmas on an earlier show. This next story is about how a holiday miracle might surprise you, in part because this miracle may also be a felony. Jeanette Winterson's Christmas in New York was read by the intrepid Richard Mazur. The week before Christmas, me and the guys at work like to go out for a cocktail and a few plates. There's a place we know on 12th Street called Wallflower, where the ceiling's made of tin and the banquettes are made of orange stuff. It serves French food and American cocktails. The night we went out, we uh, talking about Christmas past, our childhoods mostly, when, according to memory, our affidavit against history, Christmas wasn't commercialized, so although no one went shopping, there were always presents under the tree. (laughs) Kids went sledding and came home to play board games in front of the fire. Everyone had an old dog and a grandma who played piano. We all wore hand-knitted sweaters. Everybody built a snowman with a carrot for his nose and a scarf around his neck and sang Winter Wonderland. And on Christmas Eve, you did your damn best to stay awake and see the fella in red in his sleigh, and you never did see him, but he came anyway and drank the whiskey on the kitchen counter. (laughs) Santa was an alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, he spends the rest of his year in rehab. (laughs) You want another bourbon, martini, twinkle? Come on, guys, this one's on me. I got up to go to the bathroom, and I, I, I sat down again, seeing double. Sam, are you okay? It was Lucille squeezing in next to me in her little gray dress with a white collar. She works in the drawing office. I work in design. I tell her I'm fine. You didn't say anything when we were all talking about Christmas. Don't you like Christmas? Fact is, I don't like Christmas. I don't know what it's for these days except for running up bills you can't pay and fighting with your relatives. 
I, I, I live alone, so I have an easy time of it. I live alone. That's good. I'm going home for Christmas, said Lucille. What about you? I'm staying home, I replied. On your own? Uh, yeah, I, I need me some me time, you know. <laughs> Lucille nodded like she was shaking her head. Then she said, so tell me a story about your Christmas past. Just one. Choose any of them you like. They were all the same. We didn't celebrate Christmas. Is your family Jewish? No, just unpleasant. <laughs> I didn't say any more right then because the others had started singing their version of Fairy Tale of New York, which was even worse than the Pogues. I mean, what is this bonami? Is it because we're in a bogus French bar that we have to have bogus French feelings and kiss each other like it's true? It's not true, but there they are, my colleagues, clinking glasses and feeding each other prawns. Well, Lucia leaned forward and joined in, and I guess that that was the end of the Yuletide interrogation. I, I took a deep breath, made it to the restroom one more time, decided to cut away right there and walk home. I took my coat from the rail, looked back at the group, Enjoy yourselves. Outside on the sidewalk, there were people laughing, arm in arm, holding their faces up to the falling snow. What's the big deal? Snow's just rain that's been left out in the cold. <laughs> I love it when it snows, said Lucille, suddenly standing next to me in a Russian fur hat and a Dr. Zhivago greatcoat. Lucille's okay, but strange. She brings flowers to the office. She said, do you want to walk for a while? So we set off through the white light and the gentle screen of quiet snow. The streets were noisy, but it didn't seem so. The snow quieted the city and lowered the pulse rate of the place, and, and the late air smelled clean. This broken world, I said. What, she said. Hart Crane. Oh. So we walked past the bars and the eateries and the small shops open late and the guy selling bags under a tarpaulin and the bundle of rags sitting up in the doorway with a sign that said, Merry Christmas, folks. The vent next to him shot out steam and the chemical crack of dry cleaning. Lucille gave him five bucks. So what was your Christmas past? Nothing, nada, I told you. No decorations, no tree, no gifts, no family meal. My, my father drove trucks across to Canada. He always chose to shift over Christmas. Paid triple, he said, though what it paid triple for and what he spent it on, I don't know. Are you saying you never had a Christmas gift? No, I'm a grown man. I've, I've had girlfriends, I've had friends. They've given me gifts, of course, but Christmas itself means nothing to me. There was a small dog on a leash jumping and snapping at the snow like he could catch it. Christmas does mean something to you, said Lucille. Christmas means sadness. Oh no, I said to myself, she's new age or she sees a, sh or she sees a shrink five times a week. Give me a break. So we, we reach the corner by the deli. It's, it's plastic frontage protecting a row of Christmas trees and pots. I smelled cold pine and detergent. Well, this is where I turn off, I said. Your beard, it's white, she said. Seasonal. 
I brushed the snow off my chin, pushed my hands into my coat pocket, and set off down the block. About halfway, I turned around. I don't know why. Lucille had gone. Of course she'd gone. Girls don't stand on street corners in the snow. I went up the stairs to my apartment. It's a, a one-bedroom in a building with a doorman who was dead but kept for show. And, <laughs> and, and because it's cheaper than getting someone who's alive, I guess. He, he sits in his booth with the TV on. I've, I've lived there two years. I've seen the back of his head, but I've never seen him move. I unlock my door, three locks and a rectangular blank plate of unforgiving steel. I turned on the light. My apartment is like my clothes. I, I don't care, but you have to wear something. I, I, I took this place furnished. I have never brought in anything of my own. Right in front of me, in the middle of the room, like it belonged there, a Christmas tree. I ran back downstairs and thumped on the booth where the doorman is supposed to be alive and well and willing to help residents of the building. No response. I swear he turned up the sound on the TV. Well, then I'll have to call the police. I'd like to report an incident. What kind of incident? There's a Christmas tree in my apartment. Fella, you've been drinking? No, yes, but not a lot. I mean, somebody has broken into my apartment and left a Christmas tree. Any material damage? Anything missing? No. Buddy, call your pals, say thank you, and say goodnight. Happy holidays and good goodnight. The line went dead. I phoned downstairs to the dead doorman. He didn't pick up. <laughs> the following day was my last day at work. I, I got up early, which was easy as I hadn't slept much. The Christmas tree was still there. I had to walk around it to reach the door. As I looked back, as I was closing the door, I was sure the tree was smiling. At the office, I said to Lucille, do you think trees can smile? She smiled in return, an open, kind smile I'd, I'd never noticed before. That's not like you, Sam. That's almost romantic. I'm a little distracted, I said. It was a day of winter sun that sparkled the city into diamonds and pearls. Electric blue sky lit like a neon. The windows of the big department stores like magic mirrors into another world. I started to walk towards Rockefeller Center. I, I don't know why. The crowds are crazy and everyone has six bags and, and no one can get a cab. Every year, the city brings in a 70-foot Christmas tree and strings it with five miles of lights and tops it with a giant Swarovski crystal star. I went forward, I, I don't know why, standing under the tree. The scale of it makes a grown man feel like a tiny little child again. Sam? Sam, you come in now. I want to see the tree, Mama, I want to see it. They're bringing the tree from the, from the forest. You heard what I said, get inside now or no supper. Into the dark house, into bed, and nothing. Sam, it was Lucille. What are you doing here? Me? Oh, uh, I, I had an errand, Midtown. Lucille was still smiling. Is she always smiling? And if so, why? She said, I love coming to look at the tree. It makes me happy. It does. How, how does a tree make you happy? 
because it's free. And nothing's free in New York. And it's beautiful. And look how relaxed people are and with their children. And that old lady over there, like she's dreaming something good. She's probably going to be all alone at Christmas, I said. Are you, said Lucille? No, no, of course not. I, listen, I have. Well, have a good one, Lucille. I have to. I was just heading into Bouchon for a hot chocolate. Want to come? And so we sat, and Lucille was still smiling, and I was still not. And she was, she was chatting about the holidays. And suddenly I said, last night in my apartment, there was a Christmas tree. It just appeared. Are you sure? I called the police. <laughs> you called the police because there's a Christmas tree in your apartment? A guy in a plaid fleece squeezed by carrying two gingerbread mochas. He leaned down and said to Lucille, audible for my benefit, get yourself a better date, sweetheart. <laughs> Lucille laughed, but I didn't see what was so funny. I called at his back, she's not my date. The guy in the plaid turned around. So you're stupid, I get it, happy holiday. <laughs> Somebody broke into my apartment. Asshole! <laughs> but the guy in the plaid had gone, and I was on my feet, embarrassed and alone. I wasn't alone. Lucille was still there. Did you like it? Oh, yeah, the chocolate's great. Yeah, thanks. The tree. Did you like the tree? I was walking back home alone, thinking about what she had said. Do I like it that for the first time in my whole life of 32 years, I have a Christmas tree in my home? I rounded the corner. The Afghans who run the deli were standing outside. I said, did you deliver a tree to my apartment last night? They shook their heads and offered me some chestnuts from the hot pan. Am I going home for the holidays? No, no. Oh, you would like to go home, huh? One of them took out his wallet and showed me a crumpled printed picture of a house where his parents lived. A single-story building made of concrete set against a steep mountain topped with snow. He didn't say anything, just held the picture like it was a light or a mirror or, or an answer to a question. Then a woman came in wanting oranges. I went inside, bought some cooked chicken with rice and cashews and apricots and headed around the corner towards my building. My apartment is on the fourth floor with the living room window onto the street. There's a light in my window coming from inside somewhere, like a low lamp. I don't own a low lamp. I'm a center light guy. I rushed into the building. The dead doorman was in his booth watching TV. I, I stood outside waving my hands to attract his attention, but all I heard was the TV set turned up louder. He's going to explode that set. There's no elevator in my building, so I climbed up the stairs two at a time, spilling some of the juice out of the chicken container. I opened the door. All three locks are tumbled. No sign of forced entry. Inside, I reached for the light switch, but there's no need. The Christmas tree is lit up. Outside on the stairs, I can hear someone breathing heavily. I hang back in the doorway, tense, expecting something to happen. Instead, Mrs. Noblowski from the fifth floor comes heaving by, carrying or being carried by a flotilla of gaudy bags. I can barely see her. 
Let me help you, I say, because I have to say that. <laughs> Mrs. Noblosky pauses, panting outside my apartment. She sees the serenely glowing Christmas tree through the door and sighs. Ah, it's so nice, Sam. My own is plastic. Would you like this one? You can have it if you want it. I can carry it upstairs for you. Such a good boy, <laughs> a kind boy. No, no, thank you. I'm going to my daughter's tomorrow in Philadelphia. You must be having Christmas here to have that fine tree. And then she's on her way up the next flight of stairs, me behind, carrying the bags, hearing about Christmas and Soviet Russia and her grandmother's special vodka that made anyone who drank it clairvoyant. <laughs> when I was three, grandmama says to me, Agatha, you will live in America. And here I am. There's no arguing with that. She opens the apartment and I dump her bags in the hall. Her place is bigger than mine. I've, I've never seen inside before. Everything is brown. Chocolate carpets, caramel furniture, velvet curtains, the color of coffee. There's a mahogany standard lamp with a seaweed brown fringed shade and an ancient TV and a veneer cabinet on legs. The distinct low rumble from the fridge makes the apartment sound like it's digesting. It's like she's living inside a big brown bear. <laughs> Mrs. Noblowski fetches me a bottle from a cupboard. Vodka, she says, pressing it into my hand. Clairvoyant, my babushka's recipe. My, my brother in Brooklyn makes it from potatoes. Are potatoes clairvoyant? No, there is secret ingredient, family secret. Take it, you're a good boy. I, Protest, hesitate, hesitate, protest. Then I suddenly think of something. Mrs. Noblowski, the doorman downstairs, is he alive, do you think? <laughs> I think so, she says. Why? I've lived here two years now. He's never spoken to me. Well, he, he spoke to me about 20 years ago. I had gas leak. <laughs> Why do you want him to speak to you? You have gas leak? <laughs> He's the doorman. <laughs> she shrugged and turned on the TV. I, I thanked her for the vodka and went downstairs. Back in my apartment, there's the tree, the glowing tree. Whoever did this had good taste in fairy lights, but that is not the point. <laughs> I ate the chicken and rice and cashews and I left the apricots. I could have turned off the tree lights. Instead, I, I sat staring at them. By the time I'd had four of Mrs. Noblowski's clairvoyant vodkas, I almost liked the tree. I could see myself buying something similar next Christmas. I fell asleep on the couch. I bought this for you, Mom. It's a Christmas present. We don't celebrate Christmas, Sam. Why not? We never have and we never will. I saved my pocket money. My mother unwrapped the present. It was a butter dish made of aluminum in the shape of a clamshell. It's silver, I think, I said. Thank you, Sam. Do you like it? Cold light of day. The garbage truck woke me. I, I went to the window, still dark on the block. More snow in the night like a secret we'd keep. 
The truck pulled away and the dirty tire tracks were soon filled with white feathers from the snow goose in the snow. Snow goose? What's the matter with me? Get up and go out. Get what you need. It's Christmas Eve. I went down to Russ and Daughters, bought lox and cream cheese and pastrami. They, they were handing out free cookies. I took some. Around the corner is their eat place, and I thought maybe some row on toast and a cocktail would be the right thing at 9 a.m. on Christmas Eve. I swung in, sat at the counter, and picked up the menu that serves as a map. Hello, said Lucille. <laughs> she was drinking coffee at a table. Care to join me? Why not, I thought. Hell, the same woman is everywhere I go, and I have a light-up Christmas tree and a bottle of clairvoyant vodka in my apartment. <laughs> I explained this to her, not, not the part about her, but the other parts. She nodded sympathetically. Shall we have an ice cream? At 9.30 in the morning? That's somehow worse than a martini at 9 o'clock in the morning? She had a point. We ate the ice cream, ginger for me, strawberry for her. Are you at your friend's place tomorrow, or will they come to you? Uh, we'll, we'll decide that later on, I said, panicking. I, I mean, I do have friends, but, but not at Christmas, but I'm not telling her that part either. So do you want to come shopping, a few last-minute gifts? I shook my head. I, I don't do gifts. It's not a tradition of mine. Didn't you ever make a list for Santa Claus? He's make-believe, I said. Wasn't there ever anything you wanted so badly you wrote to Santa about it? Are you kidding me? She wasn't. Well, I, I always hoped I'd get a toboggan, a, a real wooden one with a leather rein and steel runners. You could get one now. I shook my head. It was a long time ago. The thing about time, said Lucille, is that it's always there. You didn't do it then, so do it now. Too late. To be a child prodigy, yes, it's too late. <laughs> to own a toboggan, no, it's not too late. I smiled at her, smiling at me. I stood up and reached for my coat. Happy holidays, Lucille. See you at the office in the new year. She nodded and looked down at the menu. I hesitated. I'm a jerk. But because I am a jerk, I didn't say what I wished I could say. And I left. Heavier snow now and fewer cars. Time to go home. I read somewhere that more than half the people in Manhattan live alone. At the deli on my corner, Farouk was roasting some more of chestnuts. He gave me a scoop, rattling the tin shovel against the coals. We are closing at four. Having a party, want to come? Sure, what can I bring? You bring nothing, you're my guest. I remembered that Lucille had picked up the tab twice now, for coffee and for breakfast. I didn't even think to pay for my own breakfast this morning. I should call her. Well, I can't call her, I don't have a cell. I went into my building. A great big silver bell with a red bow had appeared outside the booth of the dead doorman. <laughs> I knocked loudly on the glass, but all I could see was the back of his head and Angela Lansbury running around in murder, she wrote. <laughs> Am I going to be killed by the mysterious Christmas tree fairy? I deserve it.
As I tumbled the locks on my apartment, I was both afraid and excited. What now? Answer, nothing. Disappointment is the default position of my life. There was the tree, there were the lights, but nothing new. So I caught up on my work emails. They all came back with an out-of-office auto-reply. There's no work ethic in America. It's barely 11 a.m. on Christmas Eve. By noon, I was showered and shaved and changed with nothing left to do. I thought I'd take a walk. Get something for Farouk, anyway. He liked baseball caps. I was passing McNally's bookstore. There was a copy of A Heart Crane in the window. I stood looking at it, and I heard myself saying out loud, I could never remember that seething, steady leveling of the marshes till age had brought me to the sea. Crane wrote that when he was 26. He was dead at 32. My face was wet with uh, rain or snow. I went into the store and bought the book. The heart crane isn't for Farouk, but the leopard skin baseball cap is. I was sitting with him on the rusty treads of the fire escape behind the building. It's too hot inside now. Every Afghan in New York City is at the party. The music's live and there's a lot of laughter. Farouk must have seen me slip out on the fireplace. He followed me with a beer, so I pulled out the cap I bought him. Does it fit? Try it on. There's a broken fridge with a glass door propped on the gantry of the fire escape. Farouk peers at the makeshift mirror of the glass, using his phone as a light, pulling the baseball cap low on his head so that the peak is right on his eyes that are deep like black holes. I never seen a leopard skin baseball cap. I guess it's for winter. I feel like a mountain cat in the Hindu Kush. You ever been to Afghanistan? Not me. Most beautiful place on earth. Here I show you some pictures. My phone, goats, eagles, the market where my father works. Those sacks are rice. He's 70 and he can carry them. Very strong. He thinks I am taxi driver. He always wanted himself to be a taxi driver. Would you go home if you could? Farouk shakes his head. What is home? Here is home. Home is a dream. Home is a fairy tale. This Afghanistan does not exist, not for me. Home is where you make it, my friend. What do you think if I wear this backwards? <laughs> he rearranges his cap. Then he says, your girlfriend, nice girl, big smile. Where is she tonight? She's not my girlfriend. Farouk looks sorrowful. Girl like that? You should try harder. <laughs> it's later now, much later, and I'm back in my apartment staring at the tree and finishing Mrs. Lebowski's clairvoyant vodka. I can see the future, and it's just like today. <laughs> what kind of a future is that? I throw open the window, deep breaths of air. The music's still coming from the party. I should get some sleep. One night sleeping fully dressed on the sofa is enough, but there's something I want to do first. On the top of the wardrobe, there's a box in a box. 
There are other things in the box too, but it's the box in the box I want, a cardboard box tied with kitchen string. My mother gave it to me when I was leaving home for college. I smiled, kissed her, kept it for the train. I opened it, like I'm opening it now. What had she given me to remind me of home? Inside was the aluminum butter dish in the shape of a shell. She never could receive, never could give. I should have hurled it out the train window. Instead, I kept it like poison I had already swallowed. Why? My hands were shaking. I went to the window, leaned back, and I pitched the dish full pelt past the air conditioning units and satellite dishes, away through the night stars, away into nothing. I didn't hear it fall. Then I slept. Morning came. It does. I went yawning into the living room in my boxes and T-shirt. There was the tree. There were the lights. Under the tree was a long cardboard box tied with a silver ribbon. I went back into the bedroom, did the whole yawning and stretching routine again, returned cautiously to the living room. The, the present, it had to be a present, didn't it, because it was under the Christmas tree, was still there. Going into my living room was getting to be as unpredictable as having a wild animal in the house. What was I supposed to do? I made coffee, checked my phone, no messages. I wasn't drunk. Yes, the item under the tree was definitely still there. All right, all right, deep breathing. Be calm, get dressed, jeans, shirt, sweater. Now take the box into the hallway, down the stairs, and out onto the street and open it. Whatever is in there needs to be out of there. I grabbed a knife from the kitchen to split the cardboard. The box was heavy and bulky. In the lobby, I saw that the blind was down on the dead doorman's booth. Up, down, so what? Dead is dead. Okay, now I'm outside. It's a beautiful morning. The sub-zeros last night have crisped the snow into a white carpet the length of the block. The moon is still in the sky, although the sun is out. The air is as sharp as a knife. My knife is not as sharp as the air, but I rip through the cardboard, pulling it away from the object inside. Objects aren't happiness, but this one is. Inside the box is a deep, polished wooden sled with red leather rain and blue steel runners. But this sled has articulated joints on the footrest so that you can steer it. Forgetting everything, I sat on it and tried the steering. It's great! I didn't notice the car pulling up until the polished hubcaps of the retro VW flashed the sun in my eyes. Do you want to go to Riverside Park and try it out? It's Lucille in a bobble hat, the top down on the convertible. Did you give me this, Lucille? Where didn't we go? Pilgrim Hill in Central Park, Hippo on Riverside, Owl's Head Park, and I was sledding through time, or maybe there was no time because Christmas comes just once a year. The sun was going down before we were done. I said, do you want to come back for some lox and cream cheese? It's, it's not Christmas dinner, but I have black bread and some interesting vodka. No, actually, I don't. I finished that last night. <laughs> I'm taking you to my place, said Lucille. It's small and I share it, but the others have gone home for the holidays. 
and I have dinner for us, but let's go by your place first. I need to drop something off. Haven't you dropped enough off already? I mean, the tree, the lights, they were from you, right? Lucille nodded, such soft eyes. I love the way she smiles. But how did you get in? Back at the building, I left Lucille in the lobby while I took the stairs at a bound, changed into dry clothes, and packed the locks. I hesitated. I threw in a spare T-shirt, shorts, and my electric toothbrush. <laughs> and something else, something I knew I had bought for Lucille when I bought it. Thank you, I said to the tree on my way out. In the lobby, Lucille was standing with an elderly man who had the same kind of bright smile that she did. He seemed vaguely familiar. When she saw me, she said to him, this is Sam. Sure, I, I know it's Sam, the vaguely familiar guy said. Always wants something, so I always ignore him. <laughs> then he kissed Lucille on the top of her head and went back towards the booth. I recognized the back of his head. <laughs> See you tomorrow, sweetie. The booth door closed on the not-so-dead doorman. He's my grandpa, said Lucille. We got into her VW, went to her place, small as an envelope. We ate. We talked. I nearly kissed her, but then I gave her the heart crane, and she kissed me. She was in charge, I guess. I said, I owe you for coffee and breakfast. She said, there's all of next year. Thank you. Richard Masser performed Jeanette Winterson's Christmas in New York. Whatever holiday magic you're seeking this year, we hope you find it. I'm David Sedaris. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimpkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.